Would you have fly fishing by J.R. Hartley by any chance? No. Um, I have I have numerous books, Justin, but I don't have that one. Um, <laughs> I always wanted to meet somebody that had that book. It's bound to be something. It's bound to be millions of copies of it out there, you know. It's bound <laughs> to be. Somewhere. What book do you have? Uh, what we're going to do today, we're doing a book review, uh, and it's the story of the world's number one Scotch whiskey, A Long Stride by Nicholas Morgan. And it's basically... It's a history of Johnny Walker, but never, in essence, never. In essence, in essence, it's uh, it's basically a biography of of a brand, if you like. Uh, it's, it's it's quite good. I actually enjoyed reading it. Now, I definitely enjoyed it. So uh, Johnny Walker was a real person, then. Yeah, and he's a bit like um, Eleanor Rigby. You know the you know from the Beatles. Okay. He was just a grocer in Kilmarnock in, in Ayrshire in Scotland. Um he 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 was apprenticed he was born um in Kilmarnock and he he was apprenticed to become a grocer. Now he opened a shop at the time, a grocery shop at the time. Do you know the way now if you have you, you get a franchise, a McDonald's franchise, for example, you have to learn all your trade. McDonald's is a license to print money. But if you want a franchise, you have to learn your trade from the bottom up, from basically making the burgers to dispensing McFlurries at the drive through You have to learn all of that. Then you pay vast amount of money and you get a franchise. It was something similar back in the day, back in, in Kilmarnock. Now, he was apprenticed to a man called Robert Caldwell. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me he was apprenticed to Lipton there or somebody like that that, that was really big. No, he, but T plays a very important part of that. So it does. Um, when he was apprenticed to Caldwell... Now, I'll just... A little bit about, Kil, about Kilmarnock. Kilmarnock at the time was seen as a... a really good new developing town Milton Keynes of the day kind of yeah um, it was on the up and it was actually compared to Edinburgh new town so if anyone's ever been to Edinburgh and I know we've lots of people listening all over the world now so Edinburgh is essentially two different cities it's got the old town which is all very old medieval very close tall uh, and dark and then you've got this wonderful new town that was built in the Georgian period and it's all laid out, very formal, very grand, etc., etc. Well, Kilmarnock was like that on a smaller scale. It was very medieval, and then they cleared out bits of it and opened it out into this beautiful, nice new town. Sure, so, anyway, even where you are, the town isn't where the town was. No, well, I mean, back in the day, towns weren't that big, so if they decided they wanted to aggrandize themselves, they just pumped some money into it and just moved the castle down the road, you know, so that, that's... I wish they would move Carrick Fergus Castle to the Mojave Desert and I right. could go with it. <laughs> you get, you better watch it, get a wee bit of sunstroke on the top of your head there. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, anyway, he, John Walker opened uh, a grocery shop back in, in Kilmarnock and he did really well for himself. Now, he was doing his apprenticeship one of the things he would have learned, because at the time, 
big thing was blending tea. Now these days we buy, especially in Ireland. I mean, my day doesn't start until I have a cup of tea. It doesn't. That doesn't matter what I do beforehand until I get a cup of tea. That's when my day really kicks off. But we're used to now just having tea bags. But back in the day, each each person would have blended their own tea because a lot of the time it was coming in. It might have been a little bit dusty, is how they described it, but probably what they mean is it was quite dry and possibly a little bit mouldy. So they would have blended it to give it, freshen it up, to give it whatever taste they really want it. Um, if you've ever if you've ever had a, a, a cup of Lapsang Souchong tea... Oh, oh it's awful. It's awful. It tastes like... <laughs> It tastes like liquid smoke, smoky bacon or something. It's I actually thought that was the ingredient in peated whiskies originally because it, it, it's the same sort of flavour. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly got a, a, a smokiness to it, but it's not That's not for tea. It's not for me for tea. But if you get in some of that and you put a little bit of that into, you know, some of the, a bit more Assam, I give it a bit of body and, you know, a, a, this kind of thing and all these different types of tea you end up with something that people really like to drink. So that was really the start of blending. Now, so Johnny, I call him Johnny. At the time, he was very much a John. And in the book, there's a there's not a painting of him, but there's a silhouette. And he's a very sort of, you can tell he's a very austere guy, kind of guy. Uh, he looks a little bit like the Duke of Wellington. You know, that kind of, you know, chest out, a pompous ass poker, poker straight back you know that's kind of the, the, the look that you get from him you know but no he he started into this he had a little bit of um, success he was selling whiskies and at the time whiskey would have been totally different than it is today um, the idea of sort of single malts and blends wasn't really how it was they they there was a, a slight element of blending going on because people sold their own stuff. But this was before uh, coffee-style whiskies. You know, the, the grain whiskies, the very light whiskies were there. So you would have been blending probably malts. So it would have been more like a, a, a blend of malt than what we would consider a, a malt today. Okay, yes. Now, he built up a really good reputation. He was very known for being honest, known for selling really good quality stuff. He didn't get really sidetracked with politics and stuff, although he invested in uh, the likes of bringing gas and stuff to to Kilmarnock. So he was very proud of where he was from, but he died uh, in 1857, and he was he was only 52 when he died. But I mean, was that, always, was, that was about average for then, but... Well, see, there's always a misconception that... Uh, people didn't live all that terribly long. If you made it out of childhood, people tended to live reasonably decent lengths of time. The problem was so many people, so many people died before they were 18 that uh, that brought the average down. So so he probably was a little below average, but he was a little young to die. But he left a wife... Only the fire. good day, young Marty, but remember Only the that. good day, young. Yes. Me and, me and you have passed the James Dean type. <laughs> <laughs> but he, when he died, he left a wife and five children. But he must have been doing something right. 
because he left £4,256 in his will. Now that's, uh, that's a serious amount of money for them. That's a lot of money for the middle of the 19th century. And he was owed £800 as well. He was, you know, he had £800 out to his creditors. So really, he would have had well in excess, in excess of £5,000 to, to leave over. So that's a lot of money for the time. Now, his whiskey, his whiskey and that rudimentary blending business that he had, he was also selling wholesale whiskey as well. So that's really where he was making the, the bulk of his money. Now, his son, Alexander, took over. Uh, Alexander really transformed things. He, he, at this stage, the likes of bl blending was becoming a bigger thing. It was starting to, to take off a little bit. And he... Alexander discovered that pushing forward with the whiskey element was was the main focus, was the main thrust. And eventually he would um, really move over to sending people away to, well, the first thing you do, obviously, anywhere in the in the British Isles was to go to London, because that's where the big market was. Oh, I mean, that's but but just... Alexander Walker, he wasn't the first... A person to blend whiskey it was Andrew Usher of Edinburgh but they, yeah. they sort of copied it and followed in, in due course sort of thing yeah that was it um, I mean Johnny Walkers didn't invent any of this but what they did was they tried to keep the quality all the time now when they were taking this stuff to London what they were trying to do was get it to 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 all the fashionable places and with the, the onset of blended whiskies what you were getting was a much lighter style of whiskey if you if you've ever had some of the heavy peated whiskies and, and that kind of thing lots of people in london just didn't like that they were i mean these guys were used to drinking gin they were more used to drinking Cocktails, they were dandies. <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. They were just drinking a much lighter type of spirit. And then you hit them with something really, really heavy and, and peated and oily and uh, a bit more sort of cough syrupy than, than they would have been used to. So what they did was they lightened it with blended whiskies or with green whiskey, and then they made toddies. So they basically started making cocktails, and that really caught on. That really, really caught on. You know, they were putting a little bit of sugar in it, you know, a little bit of warm water, basically doing this kind of thing. And it really became sort of almost medicinal, but in a very good way. So that it really caught on. Now, one of the things that they did, a master stroke that they did, and if you go to um, page 96, 97 of the book, they bought the Cardew Distillery. Now... The Cardew Distillery was totally transformed by Elizabeth Cumming. And there's a picture of her in, in the book uh, with, her, with her grandson. She's one of those ladies that you'd know not to mess with. You, you know those, you just look at her and a you think... A axe. Well, she looks, she looks, for, I mean, I'm not saying she looks um, a hard woman as such, but you could tell this is a woman of, of some, of some... Uh, 
report, you know. Now, in it, she had bought the, she had taken over the distillery, totally rebuilt it between 1884 and 1886, and she sailed off the exhausted and unwanted old stills with other equipment to William Grant, of Grant's, just the other massive Scotch whiskey name now. Now, it was said that the distillery had just been completed and it was the thickest and richest description and admirably suited for blending purposes. A single gallon of it was sufficient to cover 10 gallons of plain spirit. Now you see what they did there? They bought this very oily spirit that really wouldn't have been palatable to to the London tongue, if you like, to, to a, a more delicate palate, if you want to put it that way, in London. But if you've got that, it's giving you one gallon of really strong spirit. You then put 10 gallons of green spirit and you've got 11 gallons of something that people would actually like to drink and it's got lots of flavour. So that was really a masterstroke on their part. If I'm, if I'm honest, I think it's um, a really, really clever bit of, of uh, foresight. Now, they bought the distillery and the farm for £20,500 in 1893 and put Elizabeth's eldest son, John, in charge. Now, he was, he was given 100 shares and appointed a director of the company and told that he had to reside at Craig Elahi or somewhere in the vicinity of the distillery to devote his whole time and attention to the management of the distillery and the furthering of the business and the firm. Now, that meant they had their own uh, whiskey, if you like. They could manufacture that and build up a lot of stock. And they had someone who knew the distillery inside out as a director on site. Now, they've just gone into, they don't have to rely on buying their stock from other people now. They can make it they have it themselves but it's so, still very much a family concern that then isn't it it was it really was very much a family concern um and they they, they sort of traded on this they wanted to make sure that there was a very much a family um element to the whole thing now it's around this time there's a change now, when you hear people talking about Irish whiskey, and obviously we, everything from our perspective on the whiskey world is seen from from the view of Ireland. It doesn't always not always about Ireland, but it's always seen as having a view from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, I find this really quite interesting. We we are always told Irish whiskey fell apart because of prohibition, because of they didn't adopt the the coffee still, etc, etc and there's elements of truth to all of this, but there is a little bit there's always a little bit different, there's always other things as well now, in the book on page 83 they talk about Irish whiskey they talk about Irish whiskey a few times through the book, but this is this is one of the, uh, the more interesting quotes from it. It says on it, it mentions Kenahan's whiskey, delicious and very wholesome, universally recommended by the profession, and Dunville's, 
recommended by the medicinal profession in preference to French brandy. Heavily advertised consumption of Irish whiskey, to quote, which a few years ago attained such a high position in public favour, was in decline. Okay, right. Mm. So, you, are they predicting the decline of Irish whiskey? Because mm. we were told that Irish whiskey was paramount up until about a hundred years ago. Well, you see, it was in terms of sales, certainly in the US. But this is a, this is a, maybe a little bit of an insight that that's not talked about from an Irish perspective on Irish whiskey. This is from a Scotch perspective. James Greenlees, one of the first Scotch whisky blenders in London, recalled that in 1871, when the bulk of whisky consumed in England was Irish, we sold about three vats of Irish to one of Scotch. Okay, so it's outstripping Scotch whisky in England, which is the big market. By threefold. By threefold. But since the 1880s, it's fallen foul of a familiar fate. This is the quote. The reason for the original dethronement of Irish whisky is not far to seek. It is undoubtedly the flooding of the English market with spirits of inferior quality. The point of of this now this is a little bit contrived, so just stick with me. The point of this circumference of the Wheel of Fortune where Scotch sets firm can even hardly yet be said to have reached its perpendicular. While the place of Irish on the wheels, so far as the better class consumers are concerned, is hardly known. We cannot think that Scotch is likely to be ousted from its supremacy for many a long day. Now that's in the 1880s. And that's telling you that the Irish whisky, according to this guy, is now very much on the decline in England. So that's that's a good... Uh, yeah, forty years before we we thought it occurred. Well, it's it's telling you that it it it's an inferior quality spirit. Now it may be that the Irish pot still element coming through might have been seen as being inferior to the new blend that lighter spirit that's coming through from Scotland. Ah, because of taste preferences rather could, than quality. Yes, it could be. But the fact that it mentions inferior quality and it's went from being Three to one. It's on very much on the decline at that point. It. I thought that was very interesting. Very but interesting. of course, it may hint back to what you always uh, expound that a blended Scotch whiskey is lighter, sweeter in character, and is more accessible because it's blended and more consistent and more marketable to a wider audience. Well, this is true. But here's the other, another quote, another bit in the book. Which it starts to talk about the difference between Highlanders and Lowlanders, which a lot of people outside of Scotland or outside the, the British Isles especially may not realise that there's a vast difference between Highland Highland Scotland and Lowland Scotland. Um, uh, Nowadays we more or less think about the Central Belt and the people outside of the Central Belt. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... but uh, but back in the day, I mean, there was a huge difference. Now, the Highlanders talk about blended whiskey not being good either. So here you have people in England saying about how much better Scotch is now than Irish, but you have the Highlanders saying that blended whiskey is not as good as the Highland stuff. So it, says, it talks about it here. Blended whiskey was also undermining the moral fibre of Highland and Highlanders. 
The bulk of the bad whisky which finds its way into the Highlands is manufactured in towns such as Glasgow and Dundee, and after being dignified with the name Redland of Hiller, Hither and Peat, <laughs> it is purveyed to the unsuspecting Highlanders and Lowlanders as the choicest product of the land of cakes. Not only is the Highland constitution undermined by the consumption of these abominable blends, but the good character of Scotch whisky is taken away. So here you have these Scotch people saying, this is not proper Scotch. This blended product. Okay, right. But whereas, it's whereas, to sell. whereas back then people said that the blend was the proper stuff because it was consistent and and it was reliable. Oh, well, it's it's a conundrum, isn't it? It is. It's very much a conundrum. But this book very much, as I say, it's talking about Johnny Walker. Now, there was the question of what was whiskey. This became a parliamentary issue. And I had to go through the various um, trials of it. Is green whiskey made on a coffee still actually whiskey? Because it's, it, it doesn't have a, the same character as pot still whiskey. But it goes through it and eventually it's determined that, yes, um, coffee still whiskey is still whiskey. right? But the key to Johnny Walker, and I'm talking now about Johnny Walker, because up until um, really the sort of 1906, on the bottles it would have said John Walker and Sons OH, Old Highland Whiskey. Now, um, and it also had very old Highland Whiskey. But in 1906, they adopted shorthand names. So they adopted White Label, Red Label and Black Label which we still still use today. And they started to uh, put a trademark on the bottle. Uh, they, they started doing things a little bit differently. And it's at that time you start to see this sort of brand recognition coming through. By this stage, they were selling a lot of whiskey. Um, they were selling it all around the world by this point. And they, they we have this... Um, idea that modern modern marketing you know is a really big business you're being targeted with ads and so on and so forth walkers were really at the forefront of this this idea of brand recognition one of the things that they had always said was the quality doesn't drop doesn't matter about price particularly stick with the quality the quality is paramount now there was other people there was various the talks about various different elements that happened you know there's a bit of scandal here and you know parliamentary judgments and stuff but the key thing that they did was they brought in a guy called Paul Derrick and he was an advertising well an advertising genius really uh, he had a meeting with James Stevenson who we'll talk a little bit about in a minute but when they brought in Paul Derrick and his ad agency they came up with the idea of the, the, the striding man, the John Walker of uh, the Johnny Walker. Now, the name changed from John Walker to Johnny Walker. That wasn't a company decision. Well, obviously it was at a certain point. Everybody was calling it Johnny Walker. So it was actually the public 
that had adopted that moniker for it rather than John Walker and Sons. They just said Johnny Walker. So they so just they, matched it. They just matched it. So it's it, it's about like Coca-Cola. Very few people ever say Coca-Cola. They just say Coke. So if someday... Unless you're in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, you would, at some junctures, if Coca-Cola decided to just totally adopt the word Coke. I mean, they adopted that have a coke and a smile and you know they adopt that from it actually says in the the tins it says coke and one icon and then coca-cola and the next one doesn't it i think it does yeah yeah i, I, I mean they, they have adopted it in certain to a certain degree but it's not been totally adopted the way johnny walker was adopted from john walker and sons now Derek. He was he was the guy who really brought you know the Quaker oats you know the Quaker oats the the the, the Quaker on the front of the box he oh. was the guy who did that design as well. Oh Greg, so he's he, he's known for these sorts of things then. Well, he did. He did. He had a whole repertoire of stuff that he had done, and there's a whole list of the ones that he did. He did Wrigley's chewing gum and uh, Mother or Home Pride, uh, bread Horlicks. Uh, the whole list of other stuff but he uh, he was very much an advertising genius really and what he did was Stevenson James Stevenson again we'll get to him in a minute recalled in an interview with advertising magazine Printers Inc there were some clear guidelines that, that would work uh, the first was that it that it should stand out from and disrupt a crowd and cliched category where the common theme was bulbous looking gentry rubbing shoulders with smugglers and Celtic Highland chiefs. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, now, that that's as fresh today really as as it was back then. Now, dare I say, you know that famous Scottish painting of the skater that you see in in the museum in Edinburgh. Yes. That's where I think he got this idea from. Honestly, I do. It could very well have been, but it was this idea. Um, that you have this guy who's just walking along, he's you know he's got his top hat and his his red coat on. He looks as if he's going to go fox hunting or something, but it is that uh, idea of just striding on, walking man. He's marching on, going to his own chin and keep calm and carry on type thing. Now Stevenson's very instrumental in this whole point here. Stevenson was the, the son of a shopkeeper uh, who ended up being a director of the company. Uh, well, he ended up being an advisor to Winston Churchill. He he became, they actually made him a lord. That was how well he was thought of. Okay. Now, when he was made up to being a lord, that was in really because he took on the job of the Great Exhibition and which was was really a showcase after after the war. Um, but he had also done work for the munitions and he ended up uh, Lord Stevenson. Now when he died they wanted to put a memorial to him in St Paul's Cathedral. That's how that's how respected the guy was. And the let me just read this. Following his death, friends organised the Stevenson Memorial 
Trust, chaired by Winston Churchill, partly to provide educational scholarships and also to fund a memorial, four altarpieces designed by Sir Edwin Lutyens to be placed in St Paul's Cathedral. However, fate stalked this man, who was always cautious about the possible offence that speaking publicly about Scotch might cause. When Johnny Walker was being advertised, at no point did they mention it was whiskey. That was a key point during, that Stevenson said. We don't want to mention that it's whiskey, because that sometimes has connotations and it puts people off. We just have the striding man. This Is that to sort of get round the temperance movement, do you think? It was kind of... The idea was to, to keep it classy, to keep it sort of above any arguments, if you like, about the temperance movement. It was That was the idea of it. And that's why it, it never never really mentioned the fact that it was Scotch. So the idea that the striding man had to stand out on its own, it had to be this iconic guy that you knew that was Johnny Walker. Now, it ended up, uh, there was some uh, to and fro in between the Dean of the of the cathedral who really didn't want any association with whiskey being put into the cathedral but churchill's private secretary edward marsh basically said uh well he wrote down why do governments make deaf and debilitated diehards into deans and canons can't winston make some of these doddering canon bishops and get them out of the way one of these old men had the hardihood to ask me if I thought that it was right that a whiskey merchant should have a memorial in the cathedral where Nelson is buried. I told him that Nelson was much fonder of whiskey than Stevenson. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up on the 12th of July, 1928, Lord Stevenson Memorial was put in. Now, that's a hell of a rise from someone who was a shopkeeper's son, you know. It is indeed. It, 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 is, it is indeed. Really but is. That, 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 that Sir Henry Rayburn painting of uh, the Reverend Robert Walker, if you, if you move it round, it, it does look, look exactly like the uh, striding man. You do know that. I do, I do. It probably, it's, um, it's a recognisable Scottish figure without it being covered in tartan and a wee Scotty dog beside him, you know? Yeah. Now, it went on. Uh, it really went on from uh, strength to strength, really. Uh, and it, it ended up that it was the best-selling uh, Scotch whiskey. Now, I'm trying to find... One of the things that it did, they, they, the advertising was key. They realised this. And they were one of the first drinks brands or scotch brands to start advertising sport or being connected with sport yeah the the, the official whiskey of formula one uh yep. mclaren uh, uh i think the spa grand prix in belgium it's called the johnny walker f1 grand prix race they also do uh asia pacific golf tournament the johnny walker classic and i think they do one in scotland at glen eagles as well yeah well, they've, they've always been really close to golf because, I mean, Troon was where uh, Alexander Walker lived and he played golf regularly. But, I mean, if, this has been a long association. So, for example, they, they sponsored the All-England Tennis Championship back in 1914 and they said the strapline was served without a fault since 1820. So, they've done this. They... They put up uh, boards with the 
cricket scores on it. So that when they had telephone lines, they had guys, runners essentially, who they could phone from the ground to, to various places around the country to put up the cricket scores. So I mean, you have to remember, this is before television. So even before radio, they were doing this kind of thing to try and be associated. And it was always John or Johnny Walker advertising. So it was really, really quite clever marketing. Uh, and they always did it with the striding man looking very... Um, I know. I mean, it, you know, we, we can't go without bringing up Game of Thrones. The, the White Walker by Johnny Walker. <laughs> the army of the undead. Oh, winter is coming. Well, <laughs> they, they, they always caught, sort of caught the wave for lots of stuff. Um, now, they... they the original drawings were done by by Tom Brown, and they they were quite stylized. They had to be quite stylized so that instantly recognizable, and it became as recognizable as Coca Cola is now, or the the, the, the the McDonald's M's, you know, the Golden Arches. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other big brand names that are just. I mean. The Nike swoosh. I mean, those are unmistakable. That that's who they belong to. They Johnny are. Walker's one of those. Hey, listen. If you want to become a poser and buy this coffee table book, where can you get it? Um, it's available. You get it pretty much any good bookshop. There's no. It's how much was it? No, it's sixteen ninety nine. If you buy it, in New York. Go to your local book secondhand bookshop, folks, and try and buy one. And don't be scared to go on Amazon and buy it off a secondhand book dealer there, because that's where they sell them these days. Don't listen <laughs> to people tell you they're not allowed to. Uh, now, tell you. Now, one of the things was they've always had to worry about was uh, counterfeit. Now, we know that this is still uh, for high-end whiskies, but Johnny Walker back in the day was seen as being real quality, really affordable but people were still trying to copy it especially during prohibition in the states and the, the talks about the prohibition and how they were smuggling whiskey through what was then the irish free state they were sending it to the irish free state knowing that it was going to go to america then they set up places in canada and, and like uh, cuba and stuff knowing that it wasn't they were selling vast quantities to canada and they were being distributed very close to the border in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> so so it wasn't hard to yeah. figure out where there's, it was going. There's more people in Tokyo and Japan than there is in uh, Canada, you know what I mean? Yeah. So they were selling this a huge amount of whiskey to Canada, knowing that it was going across the border into the States. So the counterfeiting was a problem. And I, I, there's a couple of really sort of, good, <laughs> I say good stories, sort of cheeky stories, if you like. Um, in Italy, according to Kerr, who was one of the, the, the directors at the time in 1963, this is how close this was. There was a case where an Italian company was asking a subsidiary company to supply them with 2,000 cases of whiskey to, to the Italian market. The only essential requirement was that the colour should resemble that of Johnny Walker as the whiskey was to be used for refilling of Walker bottles. So, so they actually asked Johnny Walker company, not knowing really that it was the same company, supply us with whiskey as cheap as possible 
<laughs> just has to look like Johnny Walker because we're going to refill bottles of it. And that, did, like. did they send the gallow glasses in to uh, sort them out? <laughs> More or less, yeah. They, they, they sent in worse. They sent in lawyers. So, okay. uh, yeah. Now, there's another one as well. This has been going on for a very long time. Um, they were they, they didn't really like taking companies to court for using the Johnny Walker name in the early days. Obviously, these days, it's a much, much... Uh, much harsher penalties and a lot better protection. For example, there was a, a Tampa cigar company that called their cigars Johnny Walker Cigars. Um, they went to court a few times over the head of it and eventually they ended up getting them stopped. But it was that kind of thing. But there's a couple of real, a couple of good ones. Um, they, there was a company who manufactured sporting goods in... Let me see. Manufacture sporting goods. And they they also did a thing, a blood tonic. And they basically were allowed to carry on because it was thought, well, nobody's going to mistake Johnny Walker for a blood tonic. Mm -hmm. Johnny Walker whiskey with a blood tonic. But the best one is the outcome of a case in the Mayawadi Pharmacy in Rangoon who were selling Johnny Walker wind medicine. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, I don't know whether they ever got that blocked or not, but it goes on to tell you all about how uh, it increased. Now, the one problem I would have with the book is there's a bit too much of they were selling 20,000 cases to Salon and 100,000 cases to such and such. There's a bit too much of that, but it goes on. Uh, it tells you about the the all of the different aspects of the company. It finishes really when Guinness take over, so it it comes to a slightly abrupt halt for what we now know. Because a lot has happened since then. <laughs> a lot a lot has happened since uh, Guinness uh, acquired. Uh, yeah. You mean because I mean they just joined the distillers company and. Scottish distillers that is in 1925 uh, Guinness was 1986 and then the merge with Grand Met from yeah. Diageo and then yeah. obviously uh, so on and so forth sort of thing you know yeah well the thing is they still are Johnny Walker's still the biggest Scotch company in terms of sales and I mean it's not even close uh, the, the latest figures that you have is for, for 2019 and Johnny Walker sold 18.4 million 9-litre cases. The second best selling is Ballantyne's at 7.7. Right. So, I mean, the gulf is just enormous. And anyone who... There's there's almost that inverted snobbery about... Um, about uh, single malts and, and blends and this kind of thing. And about... Oh, Single malts are vastly superior to blended whiskies. Blended whiskies still make up ninety over ninety percent of the sales of, of of whiskey. And Johnny Walker, there's nothing wrong with Johnny Walker. It's it's there's a reason it does so well. It's a quality product at a quality price. Um, and if you if you want a decent history of Scotch industry as 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 a whole. It gives you a good sort of overview of that, and if you want a, a biography of a brand, I, I I recommend this. I think it's not bad. Little bit over heavy on the 
on the seals figures, which is uh, disappointing in some ways. But there are some really good insights into it. I mean, for example, um, I didn't know until I read this book that until after the Second World War, there, there was a repeal of some laws which said that you couldn't in 1946, there were still laws that prevented a distillery operating, uh, mashing, fermenting and distilling from being carried out concurrently. Which meant you couldn't do those all at the same time, which must have been hugely restrictive. Uh, you know, you, you think of in terms of how, how restrictive that must be for production. So it was only in 1946 that that was repealed. And I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Okay, there you go. Well, it can't be all bad because we all know that uh, Johnny Walker Black Label is still about in 2049 because uh, Harrison Ford drinks it in Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> well, well, Harrison Ford needs a drink after Rutger Hauer's coming after him. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Catch the live show Saturday night, 10 p.m. And remember... Tell your friends and, uh, well, you can even ask your smart speaker to play the podcast now. Thank you very much. Thank you.